What would be interesting to put into a time capsule would be the uh, DVD of this movie uh, because it is about it. It is about the future um, and the experience uh, would be uh, cubist or uh, even more abstract to have pulled this out of a time capsule. The time capsule within the time capsule. Oh, hell yeah. Okay, welcome to Heat Seeking Panther. <laughs> I'm Miles. This is Dave. This, this is, is now the now. second time we're recording this. As yeah. The first time around, uh, there were some technical difficulties. So Talk got, about like, a cubist experience. Uh, we talked about this movie already for like 15 minutes, and uh, now we're starting back over with 2009's Knowing. Um, I feel a little bit like Lucinda. I know, do. I do. Living. I do. I feel um, like the whisper people are... Uh, you know, if only the tragedy of, of uh, your thing not recording earlier had been if we'd known about it earlier, we um, could have saved all the lives lost in this tragic re-recording. Oh, my God. So uh, 2009's Knowing, knowing. directed by Alex Proyas. <laughs> Alex Proyas. We're going to hit all the notes that we just hit so in so private. And it may it may feel awkward, but um, we'll get through it. Yes, we'll get through it. 2009's Knowing, written by Rin Douglas Pearson. I I'm going to go on record as saying it's Ryan. R-Y-N-E. I think you pronounce it Ryan. I don't know how Ra else you would say that word. It's so irritating. I though. know. Well, I've had 15 extra minutes to think about it since I <laughs> since I gave my two cents earlier, and I think that, I think that I'm going with Ryan. Um, he's a novelist. He wrote Mercury Rising, <laughs> the Bruce Willis film about a nine-year-old autistic boy who cracks a top-secret government code. So, uh, yeah. Chil so, so he has a thing with disabled, disabled children and codes. <laughs> also, I forgot to say this the first time, but uh, apparently he tweets a lot about bacon. <laughs> just like the, the idea of bacon? I think he just lo he loves bacon. All right, man. Um, I mean, I, I probably didn't mention that before because <laughs> it's stupid. But um, this, this movie was originally set to be written and directed by... Uh, or the screenplay written and uh, directed by Richard Kelly of Donnie Darko and Southland Tales, uh, which we talked about briefly um, as being fucking insane and awesome. I cannot stress enough how insane Southland Tales is. I don't know if I'd recommend it, but I, it is truly one of the craziest movies I I've recommend. ever seen. If you, if you want to see uh, Justin Timberlake um, with like a, gut shot wound uh, uh doing singing or lip syncing the killers uh mr the, what's that mr bryce no it's not oh. it's it's uh i got soul but i'm yeah uh, yeah yeah, yeah. It, right, in a right. casino uh it's got that if you want to see stifler from american pie uh in, in dual identical twin roles shooting uh, like holding hands with himself in a floating ice cream truck while uh, the rock shoots a the Dwayne, the rock Johnson shoots a bazooka on the roof of the flying ice cream truck. This is the only movie where that happens. Um, in all the movies where, uh, the Rock shoots a bazooka. <laughs> this is the only this one in which on twin uh, twin stifflers are holding hands <laughs> while floating down the river in an ice cream truck. It's uh, it is something to see. There are very there are a lot of really specific crossings of events <laughs> that happen in this movie that you won't see anywhere else. Speaking of something to see, uh, 2009's Knowing was ended up being directed by Alex Proyas, the Egyptian director who. Uh, previously directed The Crow, uh, Dark City, and iRobot, which, uh, as you said earlier, are things that are, are movies that are good to decent. Um, I, You know, I would, like, they're all flawed, but, like, Dark City is cool. It's the cool. Crow is the cool. Crow is cool. Yeah. iRobot? Fine. Okay. It's fine. It's, it's, a fine, it's a fine, like, dystopian science fiction movie. And after this, he directed 2012's Gods of Egypt, uh, a which is fucking insane and very ludicrously stupid. And I highly, highly recommend it if you like drugs and movies. Um, and I, I previously said, which I thought was funny when I said it, that uh, it's, about, uh, it's about a bunch of gods of Egypt, Egyptian gods who are all played by like n tall Nordic men and uh, 
but that Alex Proyas is Egyptian, so I think he 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 give him he gave them a hood pass. <laughs> anyway, we we've now reset the table for knowing. Let's try and get back into that plot. Yeah. I feel like I explained it as good as I can. I know. So, okay, so basically 1959, there is a little girl named Lucinda in uh, at an elementary school in Massachusetts yeah. who is uh, getting, like, some kind of telepathic communication from some something in the sky. Something. She's somewhere. staring up at the sky, and, and we hear, you know, what whispers. sounds like hundreds of voices whispering in her head. And then, so then her school's going to put a time capsule in the ground. And they ask each child to draw something on a piece of paper and put it in a time capsule. So what Lucinda draws, or writes rather, is just an entire page full of a seemingly random sequence of numbers. Just a cipher full yeah. of numbers. Uh, and then the teacher uh, takes it away from her because she's out of time. And so she interrupts her in the middle of it, puts it in an envelope, which then goes in the time capsule. So then the school has a ceremony. They put the time capsule on the ground, and then Lucinda goes missing. So when they finally find her hours later... Her teacher finds her in a closet in the basement of the school. Uh, she has scratched the continuation of those numbers into the door with her bare fingernails. And her, her fingers are bleeding. And uh, she says something to the effect of, please make them stop. Please make them stop to the teacher. Whispers. It's creepy. Um, and like pretty uh, cliche. I, I, the, I, this cliche, but here's the thing is that, right. is, and I, and I think that this is where this movie kind of got me mm-hmm. is that I think children, I think scary children are scary in the sense <laughs> that like, that sounds ridiculous. No, I know what you mean. But like, what I mean is movies with children, like the mm-hmm. omen or like the exorcist or like bad seed. or like bad seed or like, what was the one where Nicole Kidman had the kids that like couldn't go outside the others, the others. Yeah. Like I think movies with children like as the crux of the creepiness are more creepy than other types of movies. Yeah, it's uh, you see why uh, horror directors lean on it all the time cuz uh yeah, cuz when kids are creepy, it's effective. Um and uh yeah, I, there's something to to be just said about this movie. I I feel like cliché is not even like the word because I I think this this movie transcends the clichés. I'm it's not a good movie but it it's definitely itself it's definitely unique i think yeah and 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 i think i think it is an interesting i think from a certain standpoint it is the questions it poses about humans and consciousness and our place in the universe and how religion ties into it i think it brings up interesting points yeah it's big questions that it doesn't really ultimately say anything about but like big questions in all caps. Like yeah, underlined. but it's keeping you, it's using that to keep you on the hook for the majority of the movie. And I think in that sense, it's successful. And it's not dumb. Like there, there are things about, there, <laughs> there are elements to it that are, that are dumb and are, or poorly executed or undercooked or whatever. But the, the ideas in that the movie is wrestling with aren't dumb like it 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 makes some valiant efforts at uh really talking about determinism uh which like you said earlier it's like might as well be called determinism the movie uh, <laughs> i mean i feel like that is that's the big underlying thesis yeah. that we're supposed to get from it yeah and you know and just i mean it it, it wrestles we're all here for a reason or whatever or right. like something to that effect you know and, and it, it it uh puts it reframes biblical uh, stuff in a sci-fi context, which is something I'm a sucker for. Does um, Gods of Egypt do that as well? <laughs> no, so that, that, that's because I, I don't think seen so. It, but I, it's a, no, it's, a, no? Okay. it's pre. I, it's pre Christ. Um, but I, does it put like oh, Egyptian religion in the context of like science? Like, oh, I guess, I guess that's like an ancient I kind of. Thing, I mean, right? it, it more it more puts uh, Egyptian religion in like a Marvel context. Like, where oh, the, okay. All the gods of Egypt are just badass like uh, <laughs> character, like superheroes and villains who just like that's kind of tight. Each other. I could it so rules. Like, so like Thor, basically. Uh, yeah, but like yes. but like Egyptian gods instead. Yeah, of and like dumb and insane. That's that's tight. I'm alright with it, that. It's super good. Honestly, Dave, you kind of sold me on gods of watch it I'll, okay. I'll watch it with you uh, yeah i watched it on edibles at the highland park theater and uh <laughs> it was like <laughs> it was just 
Mwah. French kiss. No, uh, Italian. Sh- chef kiss. kiss. Thank chef you. Kiss. French kiss. <laughs> <laughs> please don't lick my microphone. <laughs> so, okay. So I think we covered, we recovered most of the ground that uh, we, we had done in the first d- attempt at doing this. Although you brought up. Oh yeah. Yeah. So let me, let me say this again. Yeah. So at the beginning, so, okay, so after they put the time, so after they find Lucinda downstairs in the closet, scratching the shit into the door, it cuts 50 years later. Nick Cage is a professor at MIT, and he has uh, a son um, whose mother had died in a fire shortly before. We don't know exactly how long before, a year, a couple months. Died in a, in a uh, hotel right, fire. Right, yeah, in a hotel fire. Um, so then we're introduced to Nick Cage and his son, these two characters. Cage is outside with a telescope looking up at the stars. Uh, and then he calls his son over and says something to the effect of Saturn's rings are waiting for you, you know, implying that he's looking at Saturn. And right. uh, Saturn Films is the name of Cage's, uh, famously the name of the production company that Nicolas mm-hmm. Cage started and presumably still runs. Um, so I just thought that was an interesting like thing with and, Cage. And I had started you know. to bring up that, uh, that this movie has inspired uh, lots of conspiracy talk on uh, the internet, believe it or not. And uh, one of the one of the threads that, this movie really yeah I don't believe it. Dave. <laughs> one of the threads that uh, people are harping on is this idea that Nicolas Cage is actually in a modern Saturn death cult. Which what it, makes it a death cult? Uh, a good question. Um, As opposed to just a regular cult, right? Um, here I, I'm looking at a book right now called the Saturn Death Cult, uh, trying to get a little context. And it says, this Saturn Death Cult is an investigation into ancient planetary upheavals that heralded the birth and destruction of a fabled golden age, following which mankind then degenerated into the obsessive pursuit of wealth and power through the perverted horrors of slavery, child sacrifice, and mass murder rituals. So basically things that are part of human nature that make us horrible, horrible things and a blight on this earth, they're trying to chalk up to like cosmic... Those those things, the bad things, are actually being orchestrated by uh, groups of powerful people who worship uh, the Saturn, the god of death uh, from Roman mythology, and that there were there were cults. Uh, the cults in uh, ancient Rome were just uh, that word was was for different little groups of uh, collective groups of people who worship specific gods in their canon. And uh, the the Saturn the people believe that uh, there are still cults to Saturn that uh, I guess uh, do bad. They do do death, <laughs> and that Nicolas Cage is one of them, and is um, or, or and broadcasting is <laughs> that uh, that fact out into the world for through, whatever through reason. Box office bombs such as yeah, knowing two thousand nine's knowing. Did they expect this? I feel like they expected this movie to be bigger than it was, right? Yeah, well, it, it made one hundred and eighty million worldwide, so it, respectable. It it at least made its money back, and I I think it it wasn't it wasn't a total flop, but it got panned by critics. Except, I think I know what you're except say, Roger Ebert, yeah. who named it the sixth best film of 2009. He said it's one of the best sci-fi films he's ever seen. I and, don't, and, and he actually wrote like almost an apologia. Like he he wrote this this uh, article that I I read this piece where he was like, I I went to the theater and I watched a film called Knowing and I thought it was great and I went home and I wrote about it, wrote my my review. And I woke up the next morning and I read everyone else's reviews and they all said it was bad. Am I going crazy? This movie's really good, guys. Like that's basically what he wrote. Um, and unfortunately, I think the truth is squarely in the middle. Yeah, you know, like it's not a great movie. It's it, not. It's not really a, a, that bad of a movie either. Well, but part of what he says in in his uh, little struggle session is that uh, he's like. He's like, dude, are things about this film ludicrous? Yes. Like, does some of it not make sense? Yeah, but I didn't care. I was so, like, pulled forward by the momentum and fun of this movie that it worked for me. So it's one of those movies. And and we've come across this, each of us, throughout this journey through the filmography of Nicolas Cage, where there are films that you're like, this is, I see all the things that are wrong with this, but for whatever reason, it just flat out worked for me. The, the, whatever themes or, or this or that ended up elevating it 
Uh, and so this movie, for whatever reason, did that for Roger Ebert, who I would argue, I don't want to have like a hot take about this, but I, I think Roger Ebert's track record of films that he liked and disliked is actually like pretty, I don't agree with him on a lot of stuff. I don't think he, uh, I don't really agree with his opinion, although I think he was a really important film criticism uh, figure. But I, I really think that his taste was questionable. Sixth best film of 2000. I mean, come on. What anyway. Else, what else came out in 2009 that you think he thought was worse than knowing? I'm actually, hold on. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm going to look up. I'm going to yeah, look this look up, up now because I'm legitimately interested. Anyway, do you want to like get back yeah. into the plot while I'm right? This? So so Nicolas Cage, uh, his, his son receives the this. When they open up the time capsule, his son receives Lucinda's uh the cipher and brings it home and Nicolas Cage the single parent who whose wife died and is is alone and has nothing to do uh starts pouring over it and he notices with just one string of numerals uh it's 911 2001 <clears throat> and then some more and he was like hmm so he he writes it on the whiteboard and and, <laughs> and studies it and then he looks up on the internet 9-11-2001, and he sees 9-11, on that date, 9-11 happened, and a bunch of people died. This exact number of people died as the, the number after the, the numbers on the cipher, and then he goes deeper into it and finds out that all the big mass casualty disasters of the 20th century, post-1959, were uh, the Lucinda... What's the word? She they're on they're on the predicted paper. It. predicted. Thank yeah. you. Like uh, the Oklahoma City bombing, Mexico earthquake, um, you know all all the biggies. Okay, so sorry to interrupt, yes, Dave, no. but movies that Roger Ebert thought were not as good as Knowing that came out the same year. Yeah, Crazy Heart. Uh, okay, I okay. An Education. Mm. The Hurt Locker. That okay. That's a hot. Uh, precious. Sure. And up in the air, but he did think that a serious man and Inglorious Bastards were both better than No One. And Bad Lieutenant, he thought Bad Lieutenant was one of the best films of two thousand nine, which is well, like, which is he's the right. next one we got he's, coming up. So <laughs> wait, is that next? I thought G Force was next. Oh, maybe G Force <clears throat> is next, and then yeah. and then it's anyway. Yeah. <clears throat> G Force didn't make the list. Fuck, though. man, is G Force next? G Force and Astro Boy. Fuck, man. Fuck. <laughs> oh. I'm sorry. Um, I, if you'd have read the cipher that I gave you earlier, you would have seen that this tragedy <laughs> was, was coming. It was, it's been predicted for, for decades. Now we're going to have to watch the movie about the gerbils that are, are spies. But uh, <laughs> anyway, 2009 was a weird mirror for film, specifically Cage films. Yeah. Do you think this G-Force and Bad Lieutenant, <laughs> Lieutenant. Port of Call New Orleans all came out in the same year starring mm. Nicolas Cage? Weird career, man. Weird career. Someone should do a podcast about it. Uh, so, yeah. So he, uh, he finds that out, and the plot is off and running. The, um, I'm going to detour really fast because I want to talk about his hair. It's not as long as uh, Bangkok Dangerous or Next, but he's still, it's still kind of parted. It's, it comes back. He has this like extreme widow's peak. <laughs> and, and then on both sides, it, it, it comes back from this like point in these wings. He still has the wings. Uh, it's such a weird shape for a man's hair to take. <laughs> is and i think i'm almost i almost have like stockholm syndrome with it like it stopped i i had to like just like take myself out of uh the having looked at his face so much recently and be like oh yeah this is really strange hair um but it's weird I, it's almost weirder than uh, the last couple films because it's more subdued, but right. equally is ridiculous. So, like, so, <laughs> yeah. so in Bangkok, dangerous, and next, it looked like, I mean, it, it, again, it was a character basically all on its own. Yeah. The way it overpowered every single close up, um, <laughs> and in this one, 
I like it's almost more. Uh, I feel like this is like the Sonic Youth to Next or Bangkok Dangerous's Nirvana in the sense that it was like like this is this is the more like underground version that uses a lot of the same vocabulary. So you're already familiar with it, right? Um, but but, but it kind of but it makes it. You know, it's like more subversive. Yeah, it's exactly. <laughs> like because of that, it almost is worse than in the other two films. It's really intense. Yeah, it's like it it's intense in an extremely subtle way. Well, and his his character, his character in this film is uh, much more subdued than in those films too, which adds to like the weirdness of his hair and just kind of like. I don't. I. I mean, what? How? I think. I. I think this is also like toward the end of him using his real hair in films. Like, yeah. I feel like in the so next, too. like at some point in the next couple of movies, we're gonna start realizing that. Oh, it is a piece. Yeah. Or this is obviously like a, a, wig a weave or something. Or something. Right? Yeah. yeah. Where I feel like they were still trying to make his natural hair work <laughs> in in this era of his career, and then pretty soon they gave up on it. Yeah. Or or he was like, no. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I would give this film so like if Bangkok Dangerous is a five out of five, for the I would give this film a four hairs out of five. <laughs> four, yeah, like <laughs> it's like it's not it's not quite it's it's not quite it's not as glorious. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, but uh, there's really it really has something to recommend it if you if you want to just like study a man's hairline, um, it it offers some really strange perspective on it. Uh, what do you think of his acting? I. Th- feel like he was miscast for yeah. a variety of reasons. One of them being there's no way I'd buy him as an MIT astrophysics <laughs> pr- uh, professor at no. all. No. He um, doesn't even pronounce the the Pleiades right. Like he's he, he, when he's talking about solar flares and shit, it's just I, there's just no way. Yeah, and also I just think that he does certain things really well. Like in all the scenes, like in the scene with the plane crash and the and the subway uh explosion which i thought the scene in the subway was fucking cool like that was my favorite part of the whole movie by a Mm. long shot like i think that it really worked well more than the plane crash i mean the plane crash was cool i think the i think quick cuts benefited the subway scene whereas the plane crash seemed to be done in what was a one long oh it was one long take take, oh i didn't know it was one take kind of showy uh yeah tracking shot and it was cool because the tracking shot was impressive from yeah. a technical standpoint yeah i don't know i think that like major disaster movies can live or die by their scenes of mass destruction and yeah. i think that the subway scene was a good entry in you know yeah yeah i i think they're 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 well done i think they're kind of undone for me because the cgi is so spotty um, yeah, and I think also the CGI was less noticeable in the subway scene yeah. than, than in the plane crash the, scene. The fire, especially in this movie, all the CGI fire is Terrible. atrocious. Terrible. Oh, but anyway, what, what I was saying is I think Cage shines in this movie during those big action climax set pieces. Yeah. And, yeah. and in the scene- he, so, he feels most comfortable in right, those. Like right. he can do that in his sleep at this point. And like in the scenes where he's trying to connect with his son or like mm. talk to the woman who is the daughter of- the little girl of Lucinda at the beginning. Rose you know, Byrne. Right. Yeah. Um, I think that he's not that good in those scenes. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting because, did you know, he dedicated this film to his darling child, Weston. Oh, I didn't know that. That's so sweet. And uh, his, uh, where where his ad-libs are, though I didn't actually catch them, but this is from a, an interview I watched with him, um, that he, he ad-libbed some stuff with, Caleb, uh, that he, he, from his relationship with Weston. Um, so that, that stuff was coming from a personal place. And, and I felt that I, this, uh, for cage, this movie was very much about fatherhood, like more, I mean, I it was looking back I matchstick men. If we, if we want to think about like fatherhood as a theme in his filmography, like matchstick men is very much about it, but it's, it's sort of about, uh, finding a new piece of yourself through uh, claiming that role, whereas this was uh, very much just like the paternal p- protector, and uh, you know, it, it's something that we haven't really seen from him yet. And uh, I, it felt like it was coming from a real 
emotional place, but I it was also kind of boring. Like it didn't it didn't really like there was too much of it. I yeah. wanted I never thought I'd be saying this, but I wanted more people dying by the millions <laughs> and less scenes Just of you know, emoting. Uh, yeah, and less scenes of cage emoting. Yeah, I, well, and it, it was also kind of shallow. Like a, a lot of the a lot of the kind of emotional beats in this movie are not as they're just kind of shallow. Like they're, they're coming, they're written as a, I can see them being written from a place of more of deeper feeling and understanding, but they, whether it's uh, the screenplay or whether it's just Alex Proyas, um, not really knowing how to, how to make the familial drama stick or anything like that. Like it just, it doesn't, really work it's not what propels the story and it doesn't really give it any depth right and from the other films of his that i've seen there seem to be almost no family themes in any of yeah it's all about like visuals and atmosphere and uh just kind of like uh big big kind of sci-fi ideas of like which again is where this film is most successful yes and um i mean most successful in relation to itself not in relation to like the <laughs> other general, films yeah <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah um i guess getting back into the plot like we mentioned the the plane crash and the subway crash there and now once he cracks the code um he realizes that you know there some of these dates are in the future and starts going to the location. Oh, and he realizes the other numbers on the, the thing are, are latitude and longitude. Um, so he starts going to the locations at the times of these disasters. Um, the plane crash, he sort of just ends up there. Uh, but that is the catalyst that makes him realize that the other numbers are latitude right, and longitude. Right. Because he's looking at his like G- GPS. Which and- man, dude, this, this was a, this movie took place in a really specific pocket of time. Yes. Like before you had Google Maps yes. on your phone, but after no. people had navigation systems in their cars. In his car. And he, he he's like, technologically, it's in a really funny, like he, he's pulling the, he's pulling stuff up on MapQuest. Uh, he, he, they watch things on TiVo. It's all like this is 10, you know, 10 years ago, suddenly feeling kind of like, it's like, oh, that stuff's like a lot more than gone. 10 years ago. Yeah. You know, like it is really only 10 years ago, but yeah. it feels like, like just based on the technology and the way that the characters interact with it, it feels like the late nineties almost. No one has a smartphone. Yeah. It's really strange. First he, he just winds up at the plane crash. And I, I mean, I thought that scene was stronger than the subway for me, just in that this plane crashes right in front of him. And he just runs to the scene and what really like resonated for me was this kind of like the, the, just the helplessness of, you know, you have all these people covered in CGI fire, like running around and, and, you know, just dying in front of him. And he's sort of, he's, (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm not, I'm laughing at the CGI fire. Like, like I'm remembering all the bad CGI fire in this movie. It's really distracting. Also, this movie gets an A plus for the best use of a flaming moose in (laughs) in any film that I've ever seen. Oh God. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, that scene, if we will talk about like just the most ludicrously bad CGI, like the, there's a scene where Caleb has a premonition of, uh, the forest burning and all these like PlayStation two, uh, like rendering, uh, <laughs> renderings of woodland animals <laughs> run out of the woods just on fire. And it's just like, it, it really, the whole, it just looks like a video game cutscene. <laughs> it, it, it rolls. But anyway, the, the plane crash, he's the, the, it worked for me because he's like running from person to person kind of being like, you know, he does like CPR for a second on this guy. And it's like, is this, I, I really felt the kind of desperation and helplessness of it. Like, is this even working? Is this going to do anything? Can I, am I helping this? I could be helping someone else. Like, but what can I even do? I'm just this, like, what do you do when you're in the middle of, if you're just a, a Joe Schmo in the middle of, uh, it, it, unspeakable tragedy how do you how are you most helpful well i think we can look to another cage vehicle world trade center to really give us some insight into this you you get stuck under the rubble for days (laughs) 
I, you know, I actually wrote down that, that, uh, that scene was more effective to me than the whole world trade center movie. I will agree with that. Like the, just, I felt the emotion and I felt the sort of helplessness, uh, more than, uh, more than world trade center. Um, yeah, I will say that a lot of the, the, the way those, the way the mechanics of this plot work is kind of ingenious because any plot holes or like, come on, like he was really there right when it right. happened or whatever, like can be explained with fate. Yeah. Which, which the movie sets up in the very beginning is like, yeah. That, so that's I feel something... like that's kind of a cool trump card for a movie to pull and actually pull off. I, I think it's just like explaining plot holes with like, well, it's, it, it was his fate to be there or it was the kid's fate to get the envelope. Right. You know? I, I think Ebert actually brought that up or, or one of the reviews I read brought that up that it's like, you know, something that bothers people is the sort of like deus ex machina of the, of the plot. Um, but it's like, that's actually what the plot's about. It's actually about God. <laughs> it's uh, deus ex machina. God is quotes. The, right. Just in case anyone thinks this is a weirdly like Christian movie. Well, I, well, actually, I guess it kind it, of it is. It might be. I mean... Because, the, like, the ending is basically... Uh, okay, well, let's, so... We'll, we'll, yeah, yeah, yeah. well, let's get there. Yeah, we'll yeah. get there. Yeah, I, I felt... Just talking about the subway scene. I mean, the, so he's at the plane crash, and then the next tragedy that's going to happen is this is something at the coordinates that ends up being the subway crash in New York City. And I also felt... That like it resonated with me the kind of like like what do you do if you know a disaster is going to happen which I think is kind of like the should should have been the central hook of this movie and but see I think I agree and I think the cop out of this movie was actually the okay we're gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna gonna go go into spoilers here because this is just like this is inevitable so you know skip if you don't want to hear it and then and then pull the dvd out of a time capsule in 50 years rewatch it and then listen to the rest of this episode yeah have the cubist watching Um, experience yeah but um there's a uh or i think the ending of having the world ending as a cop out because i think the more interesting movie would be one man's like total desperation in realizing that he can see or he knows when all of these people are going to die, but he can't do anything to help them. Yeah. And I think that just happening in perpetuity to someone is like yeah. a way more terrifying like psychologically and like what it would do to him as a person than just this idea that, well, now the world ended, like uh-huh. everyone's dead. You know what I well, mean? I, I agree. I think that that I would have liked that movie more and that if for, for what, Alex Proyas is actually good at and for and Nicolas Cage for that matter like that that is kind of the movie that this should have been or could have been like I I think the most that my um my sort of lizard brain was engaged was in those moments and the the kind of idea uh, it just that the panic of what do I how do I how do I warn people? Because what he does, he basically like calls in like a fake bomb threat to, and be like every get, get everybody out of that area of New York city. Like something bad's going to happen. And he shows up. And of course, like nobody is, everybody's still there plus a bunch of cops just to see and he goes up to the cops and he's like why why didn't you evacuate everybody when i called he's like whoops and starts running around and it's like well, I guess what else would you do? Like what, what can he do to, uh, to, to make, to get everybody out of an area? And he, he ends up, I mean, he ends up just running head first into the tragedy, which is arguably heroic, but he doesn't necessarily change anything. The action is heroic, but it doesn't, yeah, he doesn't save anyone. He right. doesn't do anything to mitigate the damage that happens. Yeah. And, you know, obviously I'm not blaming the character for that. I, I no. wouldn't be able to do any better. No, in I, I think that's what's interesting. Yeah. Right. Is, is that like, there's nothing he can do. If you go, if you run to, it's, I don't know, but is running right into the heart of every single disaster, like the right move. Like, I don't know. Like he's putting himself in extreme danger in every a single one of these right. scenarios. Right. Like arguably the only person that knows this is happening and can help it with the exception of like a 10 year old child is just like putting himself in harm's way as often as possible. 
Yeah. Well, and, and it, how do you be heroic if you don't know what's going to happen? I mean, what the, the subway thing sort of, uh, the, the, it plays out as he, he, he's like, Oh, the subway. Uh, and he goes down and he sees what he, he thinks is a guy with a bomb in his vest and he chases him onto the subway train. And it turns out to be like some stolen DVDs, um, that he's probably going to put in his time capsule <laughs> <laughs> and, and like, you know, then you, you get that moment of, no, it wasn't the DVDs. Another train is going to crash into it. And like, yeah, so it's, it's like heroic, but all he does in that moment is he's like, everybody get back. And the, well, he saved a baby, he, I guess that's he, maybe, I mean, he, yeah, he jumped on true. that lady and, and like a woman with a baby and, and, uh, brought her to the ground and maybe that saved her. But it's just like, I, you know, it's the same sort of thing of like, how do you, is how do you be a hero in that moment? And I think that's a really interesting question, but unfortunately that's really the last time that the movie engages it is like, it, it's, it gears up to be kind of that, <clears throat> a successful version, I think of that, that movie. And then, uh, Rin, Ryan, um, had, I think a, a different idea of, of the story he wanted to tell. I think in, in rather than stringing that out to, uh, the, a conclusion, uh, with the d plumbing, the depths of that idea, he took it to a different, <laughs> a different idea. Yeah. Well, this movie, and there's this, uh, sorry, this movie is, sorry, go ahead. Go there, ahead. There's this, like, I think sort of uncomfortable shift over the next like 30, 40 minutes of the movie where these other elements start coming in, like this magic stones and, and like, yeah, these, what, what's the significance of the obsidian stones? I guess just it was the place that the aliens landed. Okay. Um, but yeah, so these things start coming in and you're like, wait, hold on. What, the, I'm supposed to be paying attention to those things. We already have this other plot like right. streaming along. Right. And then, yeah. And I think, I think this movie is fundamentally two different movies. Yeah. And the shift happens at the point you were there. talking about. Yeah. Right. And I think that's why everyone, people on the internet and critics were kind of like, they they got off board with the movie and they felt like it was a failure, which I don't, I wouldn't necessarily go that far. Cause I do think the movie that it ended up being is interesting though. It is, I, I guess it is still a failure, but I, I do think, like I said, I'm, I'm a sucker for like uh sci-fi mixed with uh biblical uh, yeah. shit. Right. That, that's fair. I mean, that's a specific like niche, but that is something that, exists ancient aliens yeah it's cool oh yeah yeah but basically you're right that's essentially this is exactly what this, movie what this is, is. is ancient aliens yeah. yeah right okay what else so yeah you mentioned cgi flaming mix. i know i wrote that too uh yeah cgi flaming animal movie, parade with, with the introduction of like the men in black situation the like whisper people right who it, all just kind of look like they, they're going to a rave or they're like extras in the matrix or they're in like the background of a depeche mode video yeah. like there <laughs> there's like i think that that is the i think that is a whole element that could have been axed it, is having f physical human embodiments yeah. of these. I, I wrote that too. Right? Like, why I did, feel why like do they need been, to be dressed that They didn't need to way. be in because we already got the impression from the whispering, so in the psychic whispering voices that the kids heard. Why are they even showing themselves? Right, right. And and I think that it kind of took on like a really bad X-Files episode yeah. feel every time they came on screen. Oh yeah, that's exactly it. So the, the movie that it becomes is then there's this sort of like non-starter romance with, between Lucinda, the psychic girl's daughter. Truly some of the worst flirting I've ever seen oh, Cage do in a God. Movie. Like, I thought that his relationships <laughs> with, like, some past co-stars was bad, but, like, yeah. this was, I mean... The, you know, like it's one thing to pick a woman up at a museum. It's another thing to pick up a, to pick a woman up at a museum. You know, under the guise of like, oh, we're both single parents and our children are getting along. Like, let's hang out. But it's a whole nother thing to just. I mean, he wasn't. Why? Like, just it, what? Like, what was his end game? It there? felt it felt true to the character. I think as as like this guy who's sort of become uh, just who hasn't been romantically involved with anybody in forever, and uh, but that he he stalks Lucinda's daughter Rose Byrne and follows her to a museum with his son and uh starts flirting with her and like hey we're both parents and he's just like hey let me let me level with you uh i've been stalking you and i i think your mother predicted the end of the world or whatever you know the other creepy thing the weird thing this movie did that i think worked in its favor because it gave it like a 
supernatural creep factor was Lucinda was played by the same girl who also played Lucinda's granddaughter. It was the same actress. And then, oh. and then also uh, Rose Byrne's character played, remember when she's showing Cage the family photos? Yeah. She also played Lucinda as like an older woman in oh, those family yeah. photos. Yeah, that's cool. So like the whole, all the women in the family like look exactly the yeah. same, which is nice. interesting, I noticed. So, um, so we get this weird, uh, kind of romance and she's like, you're a creep, like very fairly responds that he's weird. And, uh, he's like, wait, there's going to be a disaster on this date. It turns out to be the subway thing. So she comes back and she's like, oh, you were right. Now we're friends and we're going to find out what's going on. And they go to Lucinda's house, which, uh, Rose Byrne has just kept like a, sort of museum to she just hasn't touched the mobile home that Lucinda lived in and And we're led to believe that was where she got picked up by the aliens oh I didn't even get that I thought she just died oh oh, maybe she just died I I thought they were being vague about the way she died on purpose but maybe maybe that was just a maybe that was not an important element that they didn't need to expand on. And, and this, that's where they crack the code. Uh, the, the last two numbers on the cipher look like two threes, but they're like, Oh no, they're actually E's, and they stand for everyone else, which is to say everybody in the world is going to die on this day. And, uh, that was, that was a pretty good reveal. I thought, um, it's like scratched into another door or something. Yeah, so then it then it turns into this big kind of messy rush. Like, it, it, it how is everybody going to die? It's going to be from solar flares, uh, which science people scientifically inclined people on the internet are, are like, fuck no, that would never happen. <laughs> upset about. <laughs> um, which like fuck you? Yeah, it's a movie. Fine. Get like, over it. I don't you know. know. Yeah, like, gives a fuck. That's like, not what I'm hung up on. So I'm more hung up on Cage's bad flirting the, than and I his am hair. on the, yeah. <laughs> his hair. <laughs> then there's all this like running around and yelling. They're gonna go to these caves to hide from the solar flares. <laughs> like we gotta get to the caves. No, we have to go do this and that and this and the other thing. And um, there, this part that I truly don't understand, where uh, Cage was like, "Oh, I, I, I need to figure out the rest of the cipher that Lucinda left." How did he know um, that? How did he know that she did that, that to go it, look it, for it? Even it, well, I think uh, the the teacher when her teacher had said that she was scratching numbers into the door. But what di- didn't make sense to me was that the door of the broom closet of the school was in Lucinda's house. Oh no you know? no yeah well no you you missed the whole you must have missed the whole part where he drives to the school oh he went to the school rips and the, door the door off the hinges and then oh, drives it yeah. back to his house to basically like peel off oh that's fifty what was years of layers of paint and dust to like find where she scratched the numbers the in, last numbers which yeah. he finds uh, completely improbably right and um, and so he he's like oh no the caves aren't he decides in the same sort of insane way that he was like the solar flares are going to kill us i have to make up with my estranged father and uh tell everyone to go underground then uh he's also like wait no they're not there it doesn't matter um i have to go to this other place and see what's going to happen and so while he's doing that rose Byrne freaks out takes the kids uh goes uh, to a gas station and while at the gas station the whisper people um abduct the children and take them to uh, the spot where Nicolas Cage ends up going. And uh, Rose Byrne tries to follow them and gets T-boned by a semi and bites it. Which it was alluded to earlier in the film, uh, you know, the date being October 19th or 9th, whatever it was, whatever the date predicted for the solar flares, uh, Rose Byrne's character kept saying, uh, or maybe not kept. She might have only mentioned it once or twice. But but she made a point to say, Lucinda always told me that was the day I was would die. die. So we're led to believe that she's gonna that she meant you're gonna die in the solar flare. Right. But we find out really she ended up dying in this tragic car accident yeah. while she was trying to rescue her her daughter. Yeah. So uh, that's crazy. 
Um, and I mean, any crazier than the other shit that happens in this movie? Uh, less crazy than the stuff that happens next. So, <laughs> um, so Cage, Cage follows the children to a spot where uh, out in the woods uh, full of these round black stones that have kept appearing in people's possessions like Lucinda's or the... Uh, there's a part where the uh, the whisper people roll up in a car and hand one to uh, Caleb, <laughs> which is, you know, kind of a, a, a moment that... The, that's the kind of shit that, like, just didn't need to happen. That I felt like where the gears were grinding yeah, you know, as yeah. it was turning into the movie that it became. But um, So he, he rolls up there and um, the reveal that these whisper people are aliens or angels of some, something like that. And, uh, they've come down in a spaceship and they're, they're going to take Caleb and Rose Byrne's daughter, uh, away into space and that they've, this, uh, this stuff has all been planned out and it's Caleb's like, it's fine, dad. It's cool. This is all okay. And there's a lot to talk about here because like, yeah, so this is where I think a lot of people were very frustrated with the film. Something I, I liked is the uh, there's a, an engraving of Ezekiel seeing, you know, in the Bible, Ezekiel famously had a vision of a, a wheel within a wheel spinning in the sky. Um, and a lot of people, ancient aliens people, think that that was a UFO and um, Dave, it was a UFO. <laughs> this is the only explanation for the pyramids being built. Oh, really? You didn't know about this? No. Well, oh, thanks for telling me. There's a little show called Ancient Aliens you should watch. <laughs> so, so, uh, he, he, yeah, the, I thought it was neat that the spaceship that ends up coming down is a bunch of like spinning discs inside of each other. I thought the design of that ship was bullshit. You didn't I like it? I understand why they did it for the sake of it matching up with the Ezekiel thing and making the biblical connection well, that much more obvious. Did but you like how it looks like a Lego bush? <laughs> it no, it fun. did totally. I didn't even think of that. <laughs> That is that makes me like it maybe a little more. But <laughs> the thing that initially really turned me off was the the orb that comes down it looks like a giant hamster wheel. <laughs> it's a it's a hamster wheel within a hamster wheel. It's like so like what who I don't know the whole design of that. God designed it, Miles. All right, all right. <laughs> yeah, it, fair enough. It, it it was like silly and but like. Uh, unprecedented, I think, in in sci-fi. Like I'd never seen a ship that looked like it, for better or worse. And th there, the kids show up holding bunnies, which like white albino bunnies. Which also, did you notice when Caleb is introduced at the beginning of the film, he's holding a bunny in the backyard? Yeah, but then the bunnies. There's nothing I about know, bunnies nothing else. for like between that's the that scene at almost the very beginning and that scene at almost the very end. There is no other mention of bunnies there's anywhere. Also, I don't think anything like biblically. Uh, there's no biblical significance to bunnies either. So I don't know what the deal is with that. And the, there's like a kosher thing with bunnies, right? Is there? You can't like know. have a rabbit on the same plate as it. No, I don't know. I'm making mm, that up. I have no I idea. <laughs> <laughs> so. So the aliens take the children away to, um, in, honestly, my favorite scene in the whole movie. Dave, they, Dave, I think we have extremely differing opinions on the ending of this movie. Yeah, well, the you didn't like Eden? No, okay. Well, well, but he, he, I'll tell you why I didn't like Eden, which involves talking about the, the part that happened between the children getting picked right. up and then the last scene, which is why I think the Eden scene ruined the movie, uh -huh. was I mean, not ruined it. There's a lot of things that, yeah, sure, that, yeah. that contributed to it ruining it itself. Bad. But, but the the ultimate fuck you at the very end of the movie. I like the idea of the world ending as the end of a movie. And uh -huh. as much as that seems like a grandiose cop out of everything that came before, that's the like natural logical progression of where the movie was going. Yeah, that's a pretty good um, ending to a movie, right? And also, I think that it was kind of cool. Where I, I I think that it was bittersweet and mm -hmm. and honestly, one of the most emotional parts of the movie, where he finally makes amends with his father in like the last minutes before the solar flare consumes the whole city. Yeah, I, th I thought it was one of the the best scenes in the movie was him drive his son gets taken away by aliens and he drives through the crowds of people looting and, and going crazy and rioting with this kind of... To the of tunes like, of Beethoven's seventh 
symphony Some, or yes, there's it's yeah. a it's a beethoven piece so i'm not sure which one famous classical pieces yeah and uh goes yeah makes up with with his dad and they just they, they his his father who's a pastor and his sister who's also religious and they they hug his father had said earlier that he's not going to go down into a, the sewers or whatever to hide if it's his time to go it's his time to go and cage what does he say he says his father says, this isn't the end, son. And Cage says, I know. And then the solar flare hits them and they get burnt to a crisp. And you didn't, you didn't like that. That didn't work for you. Roll credits. That's where well, I not think. Quite. That, no, well, but, I, but I'm saying that's where I think it should have oh. happened. And oh. that's, and that's why I think, huh. I, that's why I think we have different opinions about the last scene. I, I mean, so, but you liked the scene with, with Cage and his father. Yeah. Cause I liked it too. Yeah. I really liked it. And honestly, it, I thought that that was a good ending to the movie. I was all ready for that mm, to be the end. And then when it yeah, cut to the next scene, which you right, want to... Because, yeah. it's, because it, it, there's something like lyrical and beautiful about that, about accepting fate. He is, Cage has a very on-the-nose sort of like thing earlier where he talks about his... It, it, the, when he stopped believing in fate or, or decided he didn't was when his wife died in the hotel fire and he, he felt like he should have known, he should have psychically sensed that something was wrong with her when that happened, but instead he was just blowing leaves in his yard and the fact that there was no like psychic twinge meant that there was no fate for him it's it doesn't that monologue doesn't work for me I think it's silly, but you know now, then we get the like the, the turnaround where now he not only believes in fate, but accepts it and says, this isn't the end. I know it's like, well, life goes on without us and, or life is going on with my son in space, which is why <laughs> I, I, I loved, I mean, and, and this is a very like Alex Proyas moment of, we see Caleb and Rose Byrne's daughter, Abby, in in Eden, which is like <laughs> all it's these like waving grasses that look kind of like sea anemone and they're they have their bunnies and they're running around and you see multiple planets in the sky and you see this big tree, which I think is supposed to inv- evoke the tree of knowledge. And it's like it, we, this is this is new Eden. We're starting over. These kids are gonna grow up and fuck, and uh, and then I don't know, eat an apple and make the aliens <laughs> mad at them. Or yeah, something. right, right. But and and also, yes, it, it's it's on the nose. It, it show it. It's not it's not artistic in uh, the way that it would have been if no. if it had ended and without turned, showing that. Right, and it turned the end into less of an idea right. of like aliens controlling, you know, less civilized quote unquote civilized mm-hmm. planets and more into a direct correlation between aliens. Aliens are our gods. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? Which is like not, which is like less interesting to me than, than the idea of who knows where the kids yeah, went it's, it's, and who knows why they went there. Right. You know what I mean? Right. Right. I, I don't want to say it's, it's less artful because I think there is an art to, uh, a, a, what Alex Proyas does, he, his if he's good at anything, it's it's ludicrous CGI visuals. Well, and, and it was done. The sequence was done in an artful way. Yeah, I just but, don't like what it said about the general mm. crux of the movie and how it kind of soured the idea of like just because all of humanity died, that doesn't make humanity worthless. Mm. And I feel like the ending made that too saccharine of a point. Oh yeah, you know it's what I mean. It's Definitely saccharine. Yeah, I, I, it almost feels to me like Alex Proyas or maybe Rin uh, couldn't couldn't help himself. Like he had to show. Well, it Eden. almost feels like that ending was focus grouped too. You think so? Like they showed the film to an audience without that last scene, and then they were like, "That's it. Mm. Everyone in the world dies. That sucks." It's and then a downer, they were like, right? And they were like, "Hurry up, put this scene on that shows the kids." like being taken to the other planet and right. everything's fine. You know what which, I mean? Which would be interesting because I think that scene ends up being something that sort of doesn't really please anybody. It, well, it's it, it, like you're saying it does, it doesn't make it, it doesn't deepen it. It sort of makes it exactly less. It, it makes it, uh, it spells it out and, and it makes it, uh, uh, it gives it a sort of uplift that, um, 
you know, maybe doesn't doesn't really work. I mean, it turns the end essentially into like the rapture. Yeah. Where like these kids are the only ones that can hear. Oh, well, we also forgot to mention, we also see all the spaceship after the spaceship takes the children and flies out, we get a shot of the earth from space. Right. With multiple of these spaceships leaving from different points in the world. Oh. So did, did you catch that? Yeah, but I didn't think about it. So yeah, you think so there basically are other... we're led to believe that there are pockets of like psychic children around the oh. world that they had planned to take so that That's it wasn't just these two kids yeah. as an Adam and Eve. It was like many children around the world. The aliens are just breeding us like dogs. I mean, basically, <laughs> yeah. but that that's basically what the what the end of the movie that's the thesis that that the movie gives us and, at and, the end. And that's why if it's focus grouped, it's interesting because it, it doesn't it it's not going to appease any a, anyone with a religious bent because it is so um uh, sacrilegious and, and it's not going to appease anybody without a religious bent either to work. It hinges on, uh, having an emotional attachment to, um, that story. Yeah. And it's interesting because as someone who was raised Catholic, but has never, ever in my, I've never in my life thought that there was you know, any sort of contradiction between like God and science. Mm -hmm. I think that if it, I think it's it's easy to read them as symbiotic mm -hmm. in a certain sense. This really bothered me. Mm -hmm. And it shouldn't because essentially like what it's saying is, you know, just because God isn't, you know, who isn't a man in a white beard, that doesn't mean that humanity isn't still being taken care of or like chosen in a certain way, which yeah. is kind of the best of both of those worlds when you think about it. But for some reason, it that would really rub me the wrong way, and I don't know why. Yeah, well, I I think I'm trying to because it didn't it didn't work for me necessarily. Like I don't I'm not going to recommend this movie to, to uh, a priest or <laughs> any kind of like chaplain. Yeah. But again, like I guess I appreciate that this movie, like I said at the beginning, is not dumb. It has things on its mind, and I think it makes a valiant effort to uh, to deal with them. I, and um, it could have been better, but um, I think I, I appreciate that. I appreciate the movie, the movie that it decided to be, even though I think it's a less successful movie than it would have been um, if it had been a more direct sort of action pot boiler. I feel um, that. I and, feel that. And and just like movies, especially like an action sci-fi movie that tries to tackle religion and determinism in like a, a sincere way is it is an aberration. Like it's it's not something you see a lot of and one that does it to the degree of success that this movie does is interesting. Now again like this is not a very good movie. Like it it in terms of like working working in the ways that I want a movie to work like it didn't for it's like two hours long it didn't totally necessarily hold my attention I I've seen it twice and I you know I basically forgot everything except for except for that is about like numbers and about the and then the aliens and the silly garden of Eden at the end and I I just it didn't make me examine my feelings about religion or science or whatever. Like it didn't, it didn't succeed in that way. Um, which is probably what I think it's aiming for. Maybe that's really the, the issue is that, is that it doesn't quite work on an action level because it has all this other shit on its mind, but it's, it's still a dumb action movie, even though like it, it's much, it's more successful as a dumb action movie because that's probably like, uh, sixty percent of its DNA, and uh, it, it's not going to. No one's going to show this in philosophy class. Should they? <laughs> <laughs> um, here's what they should do: put it the DVD in a time capsule and take it up in fifty years and show it in philosophy Dude, class. So cubist. <laughs> Are you students ready for a cubist viewing experience? Uh, what's a DVD? <laughs> Who, what's wrong with that man's hair? <laughs> That's the only takeaway children in 50 years have from this movie is what the fuck is wrong with his hair? So, yeah, I mean, do, do we do it? I feel like... We, yeah, yeah, I, I mean, yeah, I think so. Let me look at my notes in case there's any, like, one-offs that I want to just throw out there. Um, 
This was an interesting one. Oh, I, oh yeah. Okay, so here's here's something. Uh, William Dawes. Yes. So the elementary school is called William Dawes right. Elementary, and I was like, there has to be some kind of meaning in that. Apparently, William Dawes was a Paul Revere type figure who was like who like warned of like a, a British incoming invasion, which oh, is relevant. Invasion. And you know, um, uh, there's also um, my new band name based on something that came up on screen. Tigers under threat. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, that's the, the production that the the movie. No, the the, the yeah, like Discovery, Discovery Channel, Channel show, show that he's watches, watching like late TiVo. at night. Yeah, on his TiVo. Um, <laughs> Tigers under threat. <laughs> also, something I thought was like really funny was he and Cage. Cage is like reading an instruction manual for the revolver that he bought. Did you notice this? <laughs> no. So there's like the montage where he's like preparing for like the final like yeah. end times. And, and there's like this dramatic score playing while Cage, you know, like takes a revolver out of the, bo- uh, out, out of the, you know, um, the case and he's like assembling it. And, and then he like pulls out like an instruction manual <laughs> and he starts reading it. And there's just a shot of him. There's like a dramatic camera angle where he's just like deep in thought, like reading an instruction <laughs> manual, and then it like cuts to whatever the next scene in the So is. if I pull this yeah, part, this tiny thing comes out the end. But it was just really weird. I'm like, what sort of person instruction <laughs> manual and is like, all right, I figured out how to work this gun. Yeah. Uh, he's like never shot one in his life. But it, yeah, I, I, I missed that. But I did notice him waving it around as he like drove his car to into the forest. I was is, like. Is it ever actually fired no. in the movie? It's just a prop, right? Yeah. 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 And I, I was like, both those moments feel true to that character, though. I'm like, that guy does not know how to use a gun. He's never shot one before. But speaking of the William Dawes thing, uh, that that is mentioned in all the conspiracy talk online, um, as as is the fact that the New York, the subway disaster happens at Lafayette Street. And I think Lafayette was an, another figure in uh, revolutionary war times um i started to read about it and i kind of, my brain kind of glazed over and i i want to pull some connection to national treasure but i'm too lazy so uh anyway there it, as as well as cage being in a saturn death cult um there's also talk of him uh making masonic uh gestures and symbols in this movie um there's also there's uh one of the disasters that happens um, is there's a oil spill on an oil rig, but this happened, I think a year before the Deepwater horizon. Um, so Infowars has, has a theory that, that that's, that's something that they call predictive programming <laughs> where, uh, they, I think the idea is that you, you see that, uh, disaster happening in this film and, um, it sort of makes you, it, it lulls you into more complacency when it does happen. Um, I think the idea that this movie is... Oh, because Rin was like told by the government that this is going to happen, I so you should so. put it in the movie, and I, he was like, okay, no problem. The, the InfoWars thing that I read literally just says, is this predictive programming? I don't know, but they're just, just an idea, just a thought. So, yeah, I, the idea of anybody sending out larger uh, government-appointed messages through this movie is is funny to me, this movie of all movies, but um, there that is. Another just completely random thing, but this was shot in Australia. Oh yeah, I read about that. Which is weird, it was in Melbourne. Yeah, considering Um, that all the action takes place on like the East Coast. Yeah, like I'm I'm used to like Vancouver, BC standing in for American cities, but Melbourne standing in for Boston is weird. Boston and New York. I mean, they CGI all the fucking buildings anyway. Yeah, the whole, the whole and it's everything is painfully obvious that it's all CGI'd. I, again, I don't think we can stress the bad CGI uh, in this movie enough. It's really bad. That that uh, scene of all the animals on fire though is just is it, it when it's oh. pretty metal though. You do you do have to admit <laughs> it truly like is. like it looks bad, but it's pretty fucking metal. It there's is. just all there's like all these deers, hawks, like all these woodland animals yeah. just running from a blazing inferno that reaches up into the sky if, if in it, like slow motion. If, if it was a cutscene in like Silent Hill, it would it would work one hundred percent. But the fact that it's taking place in a movie with uh, that's supposed to 
be reality is uh, really silly. Well, not only that, it's taking place in an alien-induced hallucination in a 10-year-old's brain. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. So it's no. not even happening in the reality. No, yeah, of the you're movie. right. You're yeah. Right. Um, all right, well, next time we are watching G-Force. I don't think I've looked forward to a movie less than than this in a while. Well, maybe... The Ant Bully. <laughs> but But I think having seen The Ant Bully... I think now it's like, okay, well, I've done that. So, you the, know. The Ant Bully was so, turned out to be so spectacularly weird that I have hopes that G-Force will, will have something in it to recommend. I mean, it's a movie about gerbils who are spies. And I, Cage plays a character named Speckles, I think, in it. So um, there's got to be something. If will be here and hopefully you dear listener will also be here i really hope if you have not watched uh, a cage film that you haven't already seen before listening to the episode i hope that this next time is when you finally decide to do that because i really question the life choices of someone i mean it's bad enough us we're watching yeah. it to record the episode right but i think that says something about someone that chooses to listen to our episode about an animated gerbil movie without actually having seen the movie. <laughs> I like to imagine that the, the I think the the perfect audience is someone who was forced to see G-Force for some reason, like, like they saw it with their nephew or something, and now they can have some other adults kind of uh, commiserate and um, give and be like, yes, that, that movie did exist, it did happen, and uh, your thoughts on it were correct. So if you've been forced to see G-Force... Yeah. Uh, please email us with your harrowing <laughs> story of survival at heatseekingpanther at gmail.com. And rate us on iTunes. Do that. That's the thing. Please, Just, for the love of God, rate us. I don't us know on why iTunes. it matters, but it, it matters. Somehow, for some we're not reason. getting the listenership, and it can't be because it, it's, it's not the content. It's not the, the content. content's 100%. This shit's gold. fucking gold right here. <laughs> There's no way it's the content's fault. So it has to be the algorithm's fault. Yeah. Blame, I blame the computers. Or, you know what, Miles? I, I don't blame anyone. It's just fate. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay because we're going to get taken up by a giant hamster wheel. This isn't the end, Miles. <laughs> I know. I'll see you in Eden. <laughs>